Within the field of architecture, there's a concept that is pivotal to all design. It's known as FFF. The acronym stands for Form Follows Function. Form Follows Function. It was originally expressed by Louise Sullivan, a turn-of-the-century architect known for designing some of the first skyscrapers. It was expanded and fleshed out more fully by a young prodigy in his office. You may be familiar with the name Frank Lloyd Wright. The concept addresses the ultimate question, the holy grail in the field of architecture. What is the relationship between form and function? What is the relationship between design and building purpose? This idea unequivocally argues that a building's design should follow its purpose. Its form should follow its function. And while this may be an epiphany for the field of architecture, it really shouldn't be that surprising to us as believers. Because we see it constantly in God's created order, do we not? Earth's location in the universe, its makeup and its environment is all specifically created to allow for life. Leaves are green, most fundamentally because they contain chlorophyll, chlorophyll being the primary ingredient for photosynthesis to give plants energy. Camels have humps because they need to store water when it gets dry. And the differences between male and female anatomy exist because God designed them to do unique things. Form follows function. And while humanity may reject this truth, while we may be oblivious to it in the created order, it remains true that form follows function. Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been saying the same principle is true of the church. The Corinthian church had taken the form that flowed directly from what they thought the church was all about, what they thought the church's role and his job was to do in the world. As a result, their leaders were not seen as humble shepherds, fallen men given to teach, equip, and lead the church. They were to be dynamic speakers, captivating entertainers who could be prized for their cults of personality and the following they could amass. Their goals were not holy living, mortifying sin in their bodies, and standing for righteousness in a lost world. Instead, they sought a God-authorized or God-authorized satisfaction in their own desires and the cheapening of the grace of Christ by making it chiefly about them. Their priorities were not the sacrificing of their own preferences, their own rights, their own autonomy for the sake of others, but their church became a battleground for their own liberties, their own freedoms, their own self-expression. Their gatherings were not typified by difference to others, by orderly worship, and by the glory of God. Instead, they were a stage for self-aggrandizement, spiritual arrogance, and subverting God's design in the church and the home. So it's not surprising that the doctrinal truth, the hope of the resurrection, had gotten lost in their infatuation with the now and their prioritization of the me. But lest we criticize the Corinthians too harshly, are these things not true of us today as well? In fact, these criticisms could easily be descriptions of the modern church in America today. We have become so much a product of our culture. Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., describes our current individualistic culture this way. 
Everything from the hours of our workday to the gender of our sexual partner, all are taken to be matters of individual preference. And our individual consciences are revered. They are taken to be inviolable demi-deities to whom our ultimate allegiance is owed. Society has become a competitive individualism, full of self-assertion as a legitimate end in itself. Even in the Christian religion, we find the worship of God seeming to be in danger of being eclipsed by the religion of enhancement of self-esteem and self-respect, regarding God only insofar as he is useful to that end and that purpose. This is the air we breathe in our culture today. And what impact does that have on the church? And bear with me, I know this quote is long, but he goes on to describe the impact of this on the church. I'm not suggesting that churches in modern America are about to close. The proportion of church members in our country has remained fairly constant throughout most of this century. And many individual churches are busting at the seams with hundreds and even thousands involved. Multiple services, institutions that bear their name, which can provide all the care you need from cradle to grave. No, churches as an institution, many of them are doing well, it seems, in our country in that sense. But in another sense, churches in modern America have nearly vanished. That is, in any historic sense. They have dissolved among the acids of individualism. They have become no more than expressions of the passing interests of their congregants. Their programs are determined by internal polls. Their services are determined by what they perceive those outside their number want. Their budgets reflect nothing more than the aggregate desires of the members. Amidst all the apparent prosperity, what is missing is the truly corporate element of the church, conceiving of itself as the church. Whether we admit it or not, what we believe the church's function ought to be will drive the form it takes. I find yourself, or I find myself asking the question, and I would encourage you to ask yourself the question, what do you think the function of the church is? What is the church specifically about? And what form do you think it should take as a result? If your answer to that question is primarily a function of what the church provides for you, let today serve as my final appeal to you from 1 Corinthians about what Scripture teaches about the church. Because here in these closing words of this letter, Paul reminds the Corinthians and us one final time what Christ has created the church for and what he is calling her to be. Let's read 1 Corinthians 16, verses 21 through 24. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord be with you all. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the gift of your word. The joy it is to worship you for the relationship we have with you and to study your word and continue worshiping you through reading through it and hearing it taught. Lord, I pray that you would guide our discussion in our time together this morning. Give us ears to hear what your word is teaching. Give us eyes to see. And Lord, change our hearts and our minds. Conform them to the image of Christ through our time together today. Help our focus to be chiefly on Christ and what he has done for us. In his name, amen. 
Well, I realize that was a bit of an extended introduction for the entirety of the book of Corinthians. Normally, this would be the point of the service where I would catch us all up to speed on where we're at in the letter, but I don't feel like that's really necessary as the conclusion seems fairly straightforward. Besides, most of what we're going to be talking about in our time together this morning, we'll walk back through the entirety of the book of 1 Corinthians as we review some of what we saw. And Paul is going to give the final words to this church, the thing he wants to leave them with as he wraps up his letter. He begins with a final warning. Look at verse 21 and 22. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. This is Paul's personal salutation in the book of Corinthians, which makes us ask the question, why was this really necessary? It's a little strange to us as we type up emails and write letters on our personal computers at home, but very common in the day would have been to have somebody transcribe a letter for you. So it's likely that what Paul had happen is he had somebody transcribe most of this letter, and then he steps in, he signs his name, if you will. He adds a final closing salutation to this letter. And he does it to affirm everything that was written. He wants the Corinthian church to understand this letter isn't coming from some foreign person. This letter isn't coming from some uh, phony, some fake pretending to be him. He's saying, I am writing this with my own hand so that you can know this is coming from me. Because he wants them to know that he says to them, verse 22, this warning, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. He issues this warning to this Corinthian church as he wraps up the letter. He says, if there is no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. The criteria for this action that he's encouraging is a lack of affection, a lack of love for the Lord. And it may interest you to note that this word love here is not the agape love, the God-centered, self-sacrificial love that we would expect. Instead, this is actually phileo. This is the term that we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's the idea of brotherly affection and care and a desire to know and to be around someone. And he says this. He says, if someone has no love, if they have no affection or desire for the Lord, then the church is to consider them anathema, accursed. That term anathema is the idea of separated, devoted to final destruction and condemnation. You see it very similarly articulated by Paul in Galatians 1, 8, and 9. I would encourage you to check that out this afternoon because we don't have time to turn there. Paul says, if someone has no affection for the Lord, if they have no love for the Lord, let them be accursed. What Paul is fundamentally trying to help this church understand is if someone doesn't love the Lord, he's not a part of the church. He may be around the church, he may be teaching in the church, he may be engaged around the people, as many of the false teachers here in Corinth, or Corinth were doing, but he is not fundamentally a part of the church. In 1 John, the Apostle John says it very similarly when he says this, John 1, or 1 John 1, 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with him, speaking of Christ, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not participate or practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Makes it very clear that someone who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ will have an affection and a love for the Lord. And I might double down on this a bit and go a step farther that Paul, what Paul is trying to communicate to them is if someone doesn't desire to obey the Lord, he's not in the church either. That's what Paul's been addressing throughout the book of 1 Corinthians 
This idea that they were saying one thing and living another way. It's exactly what John says in his gospel. Turn to the left in your Bibles to John chapter 14. Just a few books to the left in John chapter 14, the same individual that wrote 1 John that we read from earlier. He quotes Jesus here in John 14, verses 15 through 21. We read this. These are the words of Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's a lot of what Paul was talking about in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians as well. The Spirit opening our eyes, the Spirit enabling sanctification, the Spirit guaranteeing our glorification with God. He goes on in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, what neither the Apostle John or Paul in the book of Corinthians are arguing is for perfection. That the only people who are truly a part of the church are those that are perfect. That would deny everything else that Paul has been arguing for. That would deny the act of communion that we engage in regularly. But what he is saying is, if someone doesn't love the Lord, if someone doesn't desire to obey the Lord, it reveals the true condition of his heart. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And this, in this statement, Paul reveals what is to be a fundamental role of the church in this world. The church is to be a warning station. The church is to be a warning station. My oldest son has this fascination. He started checking out all these books from the library recently, all these disaster books, books about tornadoes and hurricanes and all sorts of things. One of the most recent ones he's checked out is a book about tsunamis. And I don't, we don't know a lot about tsunamis in Nebraska, do we? Okay? I've never seen a tsunami. I don't know how many of you have, okay? But there's this interesting system that's been put in place by scientists to warn about tsunamis. It's this series of buoys that go out in the ocean, and the buoys can recognize when a tremor has happened and when the waves start to do one of these things, and they can tell when a tsunami is coming toward land and it's going to make landfall. And those buoys transmit that message up to the satellite, and it sends that message back to the coast so that the people that are on the beach there know that there's a tsunami coming. There's a wave about to obliterate the coast. Paul is saying here that the church is to function like that. We are a forward warning base, declaring to the world, warning them of the imminent coming of God's wrath on sin. We are to function as a warning station. And this undermines the Corinthians' disagreements over morality, does it not? As the church was fighting about all sorts of different subjects, in chapter 5, the sexual immorality in their church, in chapter 6, they were suing and fighting with each other. He goes back to sexual immorality and he talks about the, how they were abusing both singleness and marriage. He addresses any number of sins in the church and he says the issue is your church is not functioning as a warning station. You have an improper view of holiness. You don't see that being redeemed by the blood of Christ results in a life pursuing holiness in God. The church should be both a warning station to the world and a warning station to the wandering. 
a herald crying out to the world, God's judgment is righteously coming on sin. And unless you fall on your face and repent of that sin and turn to Christ for your salvation, that that wave is going to hit you. That wrath is going to fall on you if it doesn't fall on Christ. And we are to herald that. We are to cry that to the world saying, this is coming. I watched a video recently, and I don't remember if it was Penn and Teller. I can never keep the two individuals straight. One of them talks and the other one doesn't. It was obviously the one that was talking. And he was sharing. He's like, I don't have any respect for people who won't share about heaven and hell. If you believe that there's an eternal heaven and an eternal hell, and that people are about to get hit by a bus, you better say something. The church is to say something. We're to warn the world that God's judgment is coming on sin. We're also to warn the wandering. That's what chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 are all about. Those in the church that get enticed by the allure of sin and get pulled off the track where they're supposed to be going, he calls the church to say, that's wrong. That is inconsistent with a life of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He says, warn them, and if necessary, warn them by putting them out of the church. The church is to be a warning station to the world and to the wandering. But in addition to this final warning, Paul also holds up a final hope. Did you see that at the end of verse 22? Verse 22, a final hope. Our Lord come. He expresses this longing for Christ's return that he's explained in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. The term here is literally Maranatha. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And though it's not the exact same term, it's very similar to what we find in Revelation 22, verse 20. Do you recall that in your Bibles, the final words of the Bible, I love this phrase. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires the waters of life without price, then he jumps down to verse 20, he says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is our hope. This is our hope. As the church, we are to be a hope-filled congregation. In addition to a warning station, we are to be a hope-filled congregation. We are to be typified by our hope and our forward-looking vision for the future. In that respect, we're kind of like, have you ever watched a movie, particularly like a thriller or something that's really intense where you're kind of white-knuckling it through the whole thing with someone who's already seen the movie before? You know what I'm talking about, right? You're watching that thriller and it's coming to the climax and you're like freaking out because you don't know what's going to happen and your buddy's over there on the couch and he's not worried at all. Why is he not worried at all? Because he knows what the resolution of the movie is going to be. He knows what the outcome of the situation is going to be. And Paul says we ought to be a hope-filled congregation because we know what the outcome of this life is going to be. We know who wins. And we know that we win with him. That's what chapter 15 was all about. This hope of the resurrection because of the hope or because of the reality of Christ's resurrection. This sort of hope-filled congregation undermines this misunderstanding that the Corinthian church was struggling with in 1 Corinthians 15 when they were denying the bodily resurrection of the believer and saying it doesn't really matter, and as a result, they were living only for today. For today's thrills, for today's values, for today's money, for today's church, for today's leaders, for whatever the case might be. 
And we struggle with that same reality, don't we? We get so consumed with what we see right in front of us that we think that's all there is. All there is is the next paycheck. All there is is the next opportunity. All there is is the next issue or the next benefit. Or all there is is what we see right in front of us. And Paul says, that doesn't inspire hope. Because if it's going good, it sounds great. And if it's going bad, we lose all of our hope. As believers, we ought to be a hope-filled congregation resting and trusting in the future in Christ's hands. That day when Christ comes back and he returns the kingdom to the Father's hands and says, it's all for your glory. We are to live for eternity, not for today. We are to be a hope-filled congregation, not consumed with the fears and anxieties. If the rest of the world around us is losing their minds, we are to be a hope-filled people because we know the outcome. So Paul issues a final warning. He issues a final hope, and then he offers a final blessing. Look at verse 23. I love this. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Paul ends this letter in the exact same way that he ends every other epistle that he wrote in the New Testament. By explaining the grace of Jesus, by encouraging them to embrace the reality of God's grace in their lives. And he connects it back to the beginning of the letter. Do you remember that? Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. This is how he began his entire letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Despite their multiple dysfunctions as a church, despite being quite possibly the worst church in the entirety of the New Testament, Paul begins by reminding them of God's grace and he ends by reminding them of God's grace. And this formula of Paul's is very consistent. In all of his letters, he wraps up his letters with this sort of idea, the grace of the Lord be with you. It always includes these three components. His desire for grace in their lives, the source of grace being Jesus Christ and the cross, and the recipients of grace being the church. This appears in every single one of Paul's letters where he says, my desire for you is that you would understand the unmerited favor that God has given you. That you would embrace the free gift of salvation you've been given that we call grace in the church. That the source of that hope and the source of that motivation would be Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. He wants them to understand that because that rewrites everything they think about the church. A few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 13, we talked about love being the lifeblood of the church. If love is the lifeblood of the church, then grace is the source and the energy of that love. It is what empowers that love. It is what makes fellowship possible. It is what inspires the church to obedience. It is the grace of Jesus Christ, the free, unmerited gift we have been given through Christ. I love this quote from Gordon Fee, one of the commentators I was reading this week. He put it this way. He says, grace is the beginning and the end of the Christian gospel. It is the single word that most fully expresses what God has done and will do for his people in Jesus Christ. Nothing is deserved. Everything is freely given. Remember when Paul said that earlier in 1 Corinthians? He said, you don't have the ability without the Spirit to understand the gospel. You don't have the ability without the Spirit to be sanctified in the gospel. You don't have the ability without the Spirit to persevere in the gospel. 
All of it is a free gift. And God didn't choose the strong things of the world. He chose the weak. He didn't choose the wise in the world. He chose the foolish. He didn't choose those things in the world that the world values. He chose us. And we're kind of a mess. It's all about grace. Nothing is deserved. Everything is freely given. And that does not nullify God's wrath. We've already talked about that. But grace is grace because God's wrath is real. And the, the church is to be an embassy of this grace. One of the fundamental roles of the church is to be an embassy of grace. An embassy, a representative in foreign territory of what that nation and that people value. Just like our embassies overseas that represent the United States of America and are a safe haven for people that are citizens of that kingdom. We are to be an embassy of grace. We are to be a gathering of people formed by grace, inspired by grace, renewed by grace, loving through Christ's grace. Grace is the motivation for everything in the church. We don't obey out of fear, we obey out of affection for Christ. This undermines the disputes over the rights and freedoms that the Corinthian church was fighting about. It reveals an improper understanding of the gospel in the Corinthian church and in us too. We either think that the gospel and our redemption has been self-achieved or that we're the center of the universe. That somehow I chose God or our, I merited saving and so I get credit for that action. It says, no, it's not about you. It's a free gift of God's grace, salvation through grace alone, or by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, so that no man can boast. Or sometimes we have a tendency to become self-absorbed, to think that we are the center of the universe, that we are what creation is all really about, rather than God's glory. And we put ourselves in the center of the sphere, we say, hey God, you need to serve my plans. And grace says, no. Grace says, no, you've been caught up in the collateral damage of God pursuing his own glory in creation. It undermines our disputes over our rights and freedoms, our self-justifying and white-knuckling, thinking we have to hold on to every right and every freedom and every self-expression in the church of Jesus Christ. We follow Christ's example, and we lay down our rights for others, offering them the same sort of grace that we've received from Christ. The church is to be an embassy of grace. And then finally, Paul adds one more unique thing at the end of this letter, and this is something that isn't found in any other of Paul's letters. This is unique to the letter of Corinthians. He adds one final affection. Look at verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Every other letter of Paul ends with the grace of Jesus Christ. But here, to this church whom he loved, to this church whom he founded, Paul adds this unique expression, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. He expresses his affection for this church despite their dysfunction, despite how they were broken and how they were fractured and how we learn later in 2 Corinthians that they were lobbing accusations at Paul saying, you're not a real apostle. We don't have to listen to you. Read 2 Corinthians this afternoon if you get time. Paul defends his apostleship. So this church was trying to undermine everything that Paul stood for, and yet Paul says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. 
And this term here, this is translated be, it's a little bit ambiguous whether it's indicative, saying something that's true, or imperative, saying something that he longs to be true. But I would say it's fairly clear from the rest of the book that he means this to be something that's already true. It's an indicative. You could translate it, my love is with you all. Paul expresses his affection for them, despite having criticized them and challenged them for 14 chapters. Paul says, I love you, and I said this because I love you. It reminds us of the words of Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You would rather receive a wound, a criticism, a remark from someone who's your friend than to be kissed and, and just blown smoke at by somebody who's an enemy. And Paul here says, I'm your friend. I've said these hard things to you because I love you, because I care about you, because I want you to be reformed and to be living in the grace of Jesus Christ. This speaks to the last reality of the church that we must embrace. The church is to be a loving family. The church is called to be a loving family. It's supposed to function much as the roles in a family do, with parents loving and caring and serving those they lead and those they care about, with the family gathering around the dinner table and encouraging each other and challenging each other and joking with each other and helping each other to pursue godliness day in and day out. The church is to be a loving family. Even when we have lost our actual physical family, for many Paul was writing to, they had to reject the real physical blood family that they had, and the only family they had left was found in the church. You see how this undermines their divisions over leadership? How it reveals this improper view of leaders in the church? Not as these dynamic speakers to amass a following, but as faithful shepherds and fathers. It helps guard against the two extremes, either a too high view of leadership or a too low view of leadership. Some of us have a tendency to endorse this too high view of leadership, idolizing and idealizing leaders as if they're the Messiah, they're the one that is going to save us. There's only one Messiah and that role's already been taken. It also helps guard against a too low view of leadership, rejecting all authority, even loving correction coming from someone like Paul to this church. Some of us have a tendency to err that direction as well, based upon history or the way we were raised or past church experiences, or maybe church experiences here. But we are to view leaders, pastors, as loving fathers and shepherds given to the church by Christ. Ephesians 4 refers to them as gifts given to the church. But this also, this idea of a loving family also undermines this disunity that the church was experiencing when they gathered together, when they were around the dinner table, if you will. It reveals their improper view of the church and quite often our improper view of the church as well. They were viewing it as a platform to showcase their status, their contributions, their gifts, and they were dividing into cliques and special interest groups that were warring with one another for who got the supremacy in the church. Paul says that ought not to be. The church is called to be a loving family. No member is more valuable than another. The ear can't say to the eye, I have no need of you. Instead, we are to view the church as an interdependent, ordered, and loving body. That image of the body that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. 
this interdependent body that cares about each other and meets each other's needs and involves himself in each other's lives, we are to be a loving family in the church. And I would argue that these priorities will work themselves out in how our church operates. What we value as the function of the church will work itself out in the way our church forms itself. Our form will follow our function. So we at Faith Bible Church, as we wrap up the book of 1 Corinthians, need to own these four realities. We need to realize that we are to be a a warning station. We must prioritize warning everyone of God's righteous wrath on sin if they reject him. Saying this wrath is coming, this judgment is coming on your sin if you don't repent, turn from your sin, and turn to Christ. Which begs this point, if you are here this morning and you find yourself in that position, rejecting Christ, denying his authority, denying his lordship in your life, saying, I don't need to do what you're calling me to do, let me warn you. that God's wrath will be rightly dealt out on the rebel and the sinner. And either that wrath will fall on you in judgment or it will fall on Christ as your substitute. The affection for God and the love for His church that we are talking about here in 1 Corinthians only comes through knowing the Savior. It only comes through knowing Jesus Christ and His love for you. Because He who has been forgiven much loves much. Don't leave today not knowing whether you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Living in your sin in rebellion against God, thinking that somehow that will merit eternal life with Christ. Don't leave today without rectifying that in your heart. The church is to be a warning station. We are to be a hope-filled congregation. We must prioritize eternity over immediacy as a church. We must trust in Christ's ultimate victory and our resurrection with him. We've got to stop becoming so consumed with what lies right in front of us. And it doesn't matter if it's the situations in our life or it's the situations in our country or it's what the world looks like. We have to prioritize eternity over immediacy. We have to begin acting like God is actually on his throne. Because we are to be a hope-filled congregation. Thirdly, we are to be an embassy of heaven. Practically what this means as a church is we must never underestimate the power of God's grace to change a life or change a heart. We have a tendency to slip into this mindset that I was a pretty easy person to save, but that person over there, they're a hard person to save. And God maybe doesn't have the power to accomplish that in their life. We must not underestimate the power of God's grace to change a heart, to change a life, to change an eternity, to change a relationship, a divided relationship with your family or a splintered relationship with your boss or a marriage issue. We must not underestimate God's power because we are an embassy of grace. We only sit here today because of God's unmerited favor in our lives. None of us deserved it. And yet the fact that we're all here is an evidence of God's incredible power to change a heart, and to change a life. Don't underestimate that as a church. And finally, we are to be a loving family. That means prioritizing faithful, caring leadership and sacrificial, loving body life. 
recognizing the roles that God has given to the church of leadership and authority and recognizing the mandate we all have to love and care for each other. We can't rely on the pastors and leaders to do all of the body life work to encourage everybody in the church. But we also have to recognize what leaders are called to be and what they're not called to be in the church. They're not simply charismatic speakers who are trying to amass a following. They're to be loving shepherds, caring for and leading the flock. Here's the point. Here's the key point. What I think is being fleshed out, what is being shown here in Paul's conclusion in his letter. We must learn to cherish Christ's broken church. We began this letter by talking about we must learn to love Christ's broken church. Here we see Paul cherishing a broken, fragmented, splintered, unloving, unworthy of love church. But he grounds his love for the church and the grace of Jesus Christ and what Christ has done for them, in them, and will do through them. As broken as she is sometimes, as messed up and as sinful and as problematic as the church is sometimes, even like this church in Corinth, she is still Christ's bride. He died for her. He bled for her. He loves her. And we can do no less. Let's pray. Father, we spend a tremendous amount of time here in this book of 1 Corinthians. Lord, it is a challenging book to read through. It is a challenging book to read. It cuts our hearts and it cuts to the to the division of spirit and soul and bone and marrow, as your word teaches. Lord, without the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, without the grace of Jesus Christ, we would never respond appropriately to this message. We would turn tail and run and say, forget it, it's not worth it. But we are a body conceived by grace, empowered by grace, encouraged to live for each other and to live for a lost world by grace. I pray that we would own that, that we would live for that, that we would just be living our lives in light of the grace that you've given us. Father, we praise you that here in a moment we're going to hear some young people testify to the grace of Christ in their lives. Help that to be an encouragement to us and help us to go out this week encouraged and inspired by the grace of Christ, seeking to function as your church the way your word has called us to function. In Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.